This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of pediatric tibial shaft fractures from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Pediatric tibial shaft fractures are the third most common long bone fracture in children. Treatment is usually non-operative with long leg casting, but is tailored to the injury type and patient age. As far as the epidemiology, the incidence of pediatric tibial shaft fractures is 15% of all pediatric fractures. As far as the demographics, boys are more affected than girls, and the average age of occurrence is approximately 8 years old. As far as the location of these injuries, 39% of tibia fractures occur in the mid-diaphysis. With respect to the pathophysiology, as far as the mechanism of injury, tibial shaft fractures in adolescents are most commonly secondary to pedestrian versus vehicle in 50% of cases. Another mechanism of injury in adolescents is a direct blow. The mechanism of injury of tibial shaft fractures in toddlers is low-energy twisting or falls. Torsional forces result in a spiral or oblique fracture pattern, or what's known as a toddler's fracture. As far as associated conditions, 30% of tibial shaft fractures in the pediatric population are associated with a fibula fracture. And keep in mind that tibial shaft fractures are the second most common fractured bone following non-accidental trauma. As far as prognosis, Healing of pediatric tibial shaft fractures are 3 to 4 weeks for toddler's fractures and 6 to 8 weeks for other tibial fractures. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over the osteology, muscles, blood supply, and biomechanics. As far as the osteology of the tibia, it's a triangular-shaped bone with apex anterior that broadens distally. The anteromedial border is subcutaneous, and the tibial flare distally leads to primarily cancellous bone and a thin cortical shell. As far as the muscles, the anterior and lateral compartment musculature produce valgus-deforming forces when both the tibia and fibula are fractured. As far as the blood supply, the posterior tibial artery provides nutrients as well as periosteal vessels. The anterior tibial artery is vulnerable to injury as it passes through the interosseous membrane. Finally, as far as the biomechanics, the fibula bears 6 to 17% of the weight-bearing load. The classification of pediatric tibial shaft fractures is based on fracture location, that is proximal, mid-shaft, or distal, and the fracture pattern. So pediatric tibial shaft fracture patterns can be incomplete, complete, or a tibial spiral fracture, otherwise known as a toddler's fracture. An incomplete fracture is a green stick fracture of the tibia and or fibula. A complete fracture is a complete fracture of the tibia with or without ipsilateral fibula fracture or plastic deformation. And a tibial spiral fracture or toddler's fracture is a non-displaced spiral or fracture of the tibia with an intact fibula in a child under two and a half years of age. Again, a toddler's fracture is a non-displaced spiral or fracture of the tibia with intact fibula in a child under two and a half years of age. Keep in mind that a descriptive classification may also be used to further describe fracture patterns, for example, green stick, transverse, comminuted, oblique, spiral, etc. Patients presenting with a pediatric tibial shaft fracture usually have symptoms of pain, bruising, limping, or refusal to bear weight. Physical exam should involve inspection, palpation, motion assessment, as well as neurovascular examination. Inspection may reveal warmth and swelling over the fracture site. Palpation will typically reveal tenderness over the fracture site. Motion assessment will typically reveal pain on ankle dorsiflexion. And on neurovascular exam, you should always have a high suspicion for compartment syndrome. As far as imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral views of the tibia and fibula that are required. 
Ipsilateral knee and ankle must be evaluated to rule out concomitant injury. Again, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral views of the tibia and fibula, which are required, and ipsilateral knee and ankle films must be evaluated to rule out concomitant injury. Optional views include contralateral films of the uninjured leg, and as far as findings, keep in mind that radiographs may appear normal in toddler's fractures. A CT scan is indicated when there's concern for physeal or intraarticular extension or a pathologic lesion. Distal third tibia fractures may propagate to the physis or the articular surface, so a CT scan may be helpful to determine this in this setting. An MRI is indicated when you are suspicious for a pathologic lesion or a stress fracture and to rule out an occult fracture. A bone scan is also indicated to rule out an occult fracture. Treatment of pediatric tibial shaft fractures can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management can involve long leg casting or close reduction and long leg casting. Long leg casting is indicated in almost all toddler's fractures or green stick fractures. Follow-up should involve follow-up x-rays in two weeks to evaluate for callus in order to confirm the diagnosis in equivocal cases. Close reduction and long leg casting is indicated for most traumatic fractures that are displaced with acceptable reduction. So acceptable reduction is 50% translation, less than one centimeter of shortening, and less than five to 10 degrees of angulation in the sagittal and coronal planes. Make sure to mold the cast to decrease the likelihood of fracture displacement. Specifically, complete fractures with an intact fibula tend to fall into varus, and complete fractures with a fractured fibula tend to fall into valgus and recurvatum. As far as follow-up, following close reduction and long leg casting, serial radiographs are performed to monitor for developing deformity, and serial follow-up should be done if there is physeal extension to monitor for growth disturbance. Operative options for pediatric tibial shaft fractures include external fixation, flexible intramedullary nails, percutaneous pinning, rigid intramedullary nailing, or plate fixation. External fixation is indicated for open or closed fractures with extensive soft tissue injury, length unstable fractures, or polytrauma patients. Flexible intramedullary nails are indicated for open or closed fractures in skeletally immature patients, as well as in patients with multiple long bone fractures or a floating knee. Percutaneous pinning is indicated for non-comminuted, unstable oblique fractures, and this may be used with casting. Rigid intramedullary nailing is indicated for open or closed tibial shaft fractures in patients at or near skeletal maturity. Finally, plate fixation is indicated for open or closed fractures with physeal or articular extension, length unstable fractures, or for non-unions or malunions. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. We'll go over closed reduction and long leg casting, external fixation, and flexible intramedullary rods. Closed reduction and long leg casting should be done under conscious sedation or general anesthesia. The approach involves extending the cast to the groin with the knee flexed to 30 degrees and appropriate molding. You can bivalve the cast depending on the swelling. Specific complications can include compartment syndrome or loss of reduction, which may be corrected with opening or closing cast wedging. As far as external fixation, with respect to the soft tissues, if there's an open fracture, make sure to debride and irrigate prior to placing the pins. Instrumentation should involve two half pins above and below the fracture in the tibia. Specific complications include pin tract infection, refracture, non-union in approximately 2% of patients, and malunion. As far as flexible intramedullary rods, with respect to bone work, drill holes are made in the proximal or distal tibial metaphysis. With respect to instrumentation, 
flexible rods are introduced into the proximal or distal tibial metaphysis and passed across the fracture site. And as far as immobilization, typically a short period of immobilization is required and patients are made non-weight-bearing given the flexibility of the nails. This has been a tested point on past exams, so I'll say it again. Typically, a short period of immobilization is done after flexible intramedullary rods, and then a period of non-weight-bearing is done given the flexibility of the nails. Specific complications after flexible intramedullary rods include non-union in approximately 10% of patients, malunion, or infection. As far as outcomes after flexible intramedullary rods, there's a shorter immobilization period compared to casting, which is typically three months. Some complications to be aware of after pediatric tibial shaft fractures include compartment syndrome, leg length discrepancy, angular deformity, associated physeal injury, as well as delayed union and non-union. As far as the incidence of compartment syndrome, this is less common than adult tibial shaft fractures. Risk factors include open and closed fractures. Treatment is an emergent fasciotomy, and the indications is similar to adults. Remember the three A's, analgesia, anxiety, and agitation. The risk factors for leg length discrepancy is children less than 10 years old, comminution, which may lead to overgrowth, as well as iatrogenic pin placement, which may lead to growth arrest or recurvatum from tibial tubercle arrest. Risk factors for angular deformity include complex deformity, valgus and apex posterior deformity, as well as physeal extension. Treatment includes a corrective osteotomy, which is indicated for rotational malunion, as well as symptomatic patients and patients at risk of joint degeneration. Risk factors for associated physeal injury include open and closed fractures, as well as distal fractures. Treatments include reduction and follow-up. Finally, the incidence of delayed union and non-union is 25% in open tibia fractures. Risk factors include increasing age, as well as increasing severity of the wound. Treatment is determined by the type of non-union, so hypertrophic non-unions should be treated with bone grafting and rigid fixation. Oligotrophic or atrophic non-union should be treated with bone grafting and fixation, plus or minus resection. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 13-year-old boy falls from an ATV and sustains a tibial shaft fracture and fibula fracture. The injury is closed and the patient is neurovascularly intact with soft compartments. You are planning to treat the injury with elastic intramedullary nails. Which of the following is the most accurate with regard to his immediate postoperative care? And the choices are 1. He will be in a soft bandage and be weight-bearing as tolerated. 2. He will be in a soft bandage and non-weight-bearing. 3. He will be in a knee immobilizer and be weight-bearing as tolerated. 4. He will be non-weight-bearing in a splint or cast. And 5. He will be weight-bearing as tolerated with a supplemental external fixator. The correct answer to this question is 4. He will be non-weight-bearing in a splint or cast. So a period of immobilization and non-weight-bearing is recommended following elastic nailing of a tibia fracture. Tibial shaft fractures in the pediatric population are a relatively common injury, accounting for approximately 15% of all pediatric fractures. The treatment for these fractures can be operative or non-operative, with successful results in each method. The determination of treatment methodology should take into account both patient and fracture-specific characteristics. When elastic nailing is chosen as the treatment option, a period of cast or splint immobilization is often recommended to decrease the risk of malunion slash non-union. 
Immobilization and non-weight bearing may aid in the maintenance of alignment and rotation of the construct before healing has taken place. Srivasta et al. retrospectively reviewed 24 tibial shaft fractures treated with elastic nailing, 16 of which were open injuries. They found that the average time to union was similar for both the open and closed injury groups with an average time to union between 20 to 21 weeks. They concluded that elastic nailing is an overall effective treatment option. Gordon et al. reviewed 60 pediatric tibial shaft fractures treated with elastic intramedullary fixation. They reported overall good results but noted an 11% delayed union rate, which tended to occur more frequently in the adolescent population with an average age of 14. They concluded that treating pediatric tibial shaft fractures with elastic nailing is effective but has a delayed rate of healing in older patients. Moving on to the next question. You are considering titanium elastic nailing for a distal third tibia and fibula fracture. Which of the following is true? And the choices are 1. The technique has a higher rate of union than casting alone. 2. The technique is contraindicated for patients greater than 50 kilograms. 3. The patient may require a period of casting. 4. The technique should be avoided in open fractures. And 5. Both 1 and 3. The correct answer to this question is 3. The patient may require a period of casting. So a period of casting is generally indicated following elastic nailing of a tibia fracture. To quickly review, tibial shaft fractures in the pediatric population are a relatively common injury, accounting for approximately 15% of all pediatric fractures. The treatment for these fractures can be operative or non-operative, with successful results in each method. The determination of treatment methodology should take into account both patient and fracture-specific characteristics. When elastic nailing is chosen as the treatment option, a period of cast or splint immobilization is often recommended to decrease the risk of malunion slash nonunion. Casting may aid in the maintenance of alignment and rotation, especially in the more unstable fracture types, by improving the stability of the construct before healing has taken place. Gordon et al. reviewed 60 pediatric tibial shaft fractures treated with flexible intramedullary fixation. They reported overall good results, but noted an 11% delayed union rate, which tended to occur more frequently in the adolescent population with an average age of 14. They concluded that treating pediatric tibial shaft fractures with flexible nailing is effective, but has a delayed rate of healing in older patients. Moving on to the next question. For a diaphyseal fracture of the tibia and fibula in a patient with open physis, Treatment with closed reduction and casting has a higher incidence of which of the following when compared to treatment with flexible intramedullary nailing? And the choices are 1. Leg length discrepancy, 2. Compartment syndrome, 3. Nonunion, 4. Malunion, and 5. Prolonged immobilization. The correct answer to this question is 5. Prolonged immobilization. So when comparing the outcomes of closed reduction and casting versus flexible intramedullary nailing for the treatment of pediatric tibial shaft fractures, the only appreciable difference is that closed reduction requires prolonged immobilization and has a lower incidence of compartment syndrome. Studies have not demonstrated that closed pediatric tibial shaft fractures treated with flexible intramedullary nailing have improved outcomes compared with closed reduction and casting. Closed reduction and casting often requires conscious sedation in the ED or OR adequate three-point molding, a well-padded splint or univalved cast, attention to padding bony prominences, strict elevation, monitoring for compartment syndrome, and close follow-up. Cast wedging can be useful in correcting deformity early on. Close reduction and casting may require more than three months of immobilization, 
often initially with a long leg cast, with full return to activity sometimes taking up to four months. In contrast, flexible intramedullary nail protocols typically have a much shorter period of immobilization in a splint or cast given the, quote, internal splinting of the intramedullary nails. Acceptable alignment is similar to adult parameters that is less than 10 degrees of coronal and sagittal angulation, 50% translation, and 10 millimeters of shortening. Ho provided a review article comparing closed reduction and casting versus flexible intramedullary nailing in the treatment of adolescent tibial shaft fractures. She notes that selection bias in prior studies makes it difficult to objectively compare the two treatment methods. She concludes that closed reduction and casting remains the preferred treatment method for these injuries in her institution. But reasons for surgical fixation include open fractures, obese patients, concern for developing compartment syndrome, segmental injuries, polytrauma, floating knee, and failure of non-operative management. Pandya reviewed the management of open and unstable pediatric tibial shaft fractures with flexible intramedullary nailing. He notes the high incidence of complications with external fixation and the documented efficacy of flexible intramedullary nailing in high-energy and open tibial shaft fractures in this population, as well as the fact that rigid intramedullary nailing is avoided due to open physis. He concludes that flexible intramedullary nailing in this setting has a low rate of complications and predictable healing, but cautions that monitoring for compartment syndrome postoperatively is essential. Moving on to the next question. A three-year-old patient fell out of a tree and sustained a closed right tibial shaft fracture. Approximately 30 hours after the injury, the floor nurse calls stating that the patient is complaining of severe right leg and foot pain despite adequate analgesia with IV morphine and NSAIDs. On examination, the right leg is well perfused but is tense with some compressibility. The patient has strong dorsalis pedis and posterior tibial pulses. The current splint on the right leg appears to be appropriately fitting and not constrictive. What is the next appropriate step? And the choices are 1. Increased dose of narcotic medications. 2. Elevate the right lower extremity. 3. Perform 4. Compartment fasciotomy. 4. Exchange current splint for a looser fitting splint. And 5. Observe and repeat examination in 1 hour. The correct answer to this question is 3. Perform a 4. Compartment fasciotomy. So the patient is presenting with signs concerning for compartment syndrome following a tibial shaft fracture. The most appropriate step is to perform a four-compartment fasciotomy. Compartment syndrome following tibial shaft fractures occurs less commonly in pediatric patients than in adults and usually results from motor vehicle-related trauma. Pediatric patients will typically present with increasing pain medication requirements and agitation as well as anxiety rather than intractable pain in the affected extremity. Early recognition is vital in order to prevent neurovascular consequences with treatment consisting of four-compartment fasciotomy. Ojike et al. performed a systematic review of foot-compartment syndrome consisting of four retrospective reviews. The authors found that most cases were due to crush injuries and 52% of cases had neurological deficits after fasciotomy. Only 10% of patients were capable of returning to their pre-injury level of work. Bade et al. performed a case series of four patients presenting with lower extremity compartment syndrome. The authors identified four competent and fully awake patients that developed compartment syndrome without classic signs and symptoms of intractable pain and pain with passive stretch. The authors recommended frequent bedside clinical examinations with a low threshold for compartment pressure measurements. Flynn et al. performed a retrospective review of 43 cases of lower extremity compartment syndrome in pediatric patients. 
The authors found that the major injury mechanism was motor vehicle versus pedestrian, with many cases being diagnosed in a delayed fashion. Despite the delayed diagnosis, nearly all cases had excellent outcomes with no infections following fasciotomies. The authors recommend frequent and extended compartment checks and advocate for fasciotomies even in delayed presentations. Livingston et al. reviewed the literature regarding the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric acute compartment syndrome. The most common cause of pediatric compartment syndrome are fractures, specifically of the tibia, with the most common non-fracture-related cause being a vascular insult. The literature supports prompt treatment as permanent tissue damage occurs after 8 hours of ischemia. Pediatric patients may present with increased agitation, anxiety, and analgesic requirements rather than the classic pain, paresthesias, pallor, pulselessness, and paralysis associated with adult compartment syndrome. And moving on to the final question. A 23-month-old girl refuses to bear weight since falling on the playground yesterday. The child is afebrile and her white blood cell count and ESR are within normal limits. On physical exam, the leg has no erythema but does have mild tenderness along the distal tibial shaft. Plain radiographs are negative. What is the most appropriate management? And the choices are 1. Vitamin D and calcium levels, 2. MRI of the pelvis, 3. Long leg cast, 4. Chromosomal analysis, and 5. Aspiration of the knee. The correct answer to this question is 3. Long leg cast. So the clinical presentation is consistent with a toddler's fracture, which is treated with a long leg cast. Initial radiographs are often negative, but follow-up radiographs may demonstrate a healing periosteal reaction. According to Matru et al., in a review of tibia fractures, toddler's fractures are one of the most common injuries in the child younger than two years. They are non-displaced spiral fractures of the tibia caused by low-energy twists and falls. The treatment is application of a long leg cast for three to four weeks. That's all for this review of pediatric tibial shaft fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that this podcast is designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.